Hi. I'm going to set the scene for you of the talk that Jesus gave his disciples after they asked him a couple questions regarding his return to earth and the end of the age. This is the talk often called the Olivet Discourse. You're going to notice a number of recognizable New Testament Bible stories that surround the event in very close proximity. It's important to understand the setting in order to better understand what Jesus was saying to his disciples. Well, the year was around 30 A.D. Jesus and his 12 disciples were about 75 miles, a three- or four-day walking journey away from his hometown of Nazareth. Jesus came here to Jerusalem from a place called Ephraim in the north. While on the road or trail, the 13 men went through a sparsely populated valley that was covered in tropical vegetation on both sides. They crossed the Jordan River and passed through the city of Jericho, spending the night there in the house of a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Jericho, during Jesus' day, was a center of Greek paganism. It was a modern city filled with magnificent fountains and gardens. On the way out of Jericho, a large crowd followed Jesus. A couple blind men who were sitting along the road called out to him to catch his attention. Jesus asked them what they wanted. They responded with a deep desire of only wanting to see. Jesus touches their eyes, and they were both healed. Imagine the first thing that you see at that life-altering moment is the Savior's face staring back into yours. Later, the last 23 miles of the journey from Jericho to Jerusalem would take the group up a dusty, winding road that passed by cliffs which towered 4,000 feet high. The disciples knew this trip they were taking with their master was different than any trip they had previously undertaken with him before. Although the twelve didn't understand Jesus at the time, he had told them that as a result of taking this trip to Jerusalem, that he would be delivered over to the Gentiles, or non-Jews, at which time he would be mocked, spit on, flogged, and then killed. He told them that three days after his death, he would rise from the dead. It's no wonder the disciples didn't understand Jesus. Who would take such a trip if they knew those things were going to literally happen? What could Jesus have possibly meant that he would rise three days after being killed? Well, let's get back to Tuesday. It's now Tuesday afternoon, and time to start thinking about finding some place to spend the night. Jerusalem is crowded with thousands of pilgrims who have come here for the annual Passover celebration. The day started off in Bethany, which lays about one and a half to two miles away from the base of the southeast side of the Mount of Olives. Jesus arrived in Bethany six days prior to the Passover. He most likely spent the last four nights in Bethany. He may have been staying at Mary, Lazarus, and Martha's house. They were good friends of Jesus. In fact, not very long before, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been in the grave for four days. Well, needless to say, that event, that miracle, caused quite a stir in Bethany and far beyond. From that day on, the Jewish religious had determined that they needed to kill Jesus. You can read about that in John eleven fifty three. They had determined that Jesus was just too much of a threat to the status quo. It was right after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead that he retreated up to the north to Ephraim. Looking for some breakfast on the prior day, Monday morning, Jesus came upon a fig tree and it had no figs on it. Figs were not in season, 
but apparently disappointed, or more likely in order to make a point since the figs weren't even in season, Jesus cursed the tree. To the amazement of the disciples, the next morning, Tuesday morning, when they passed by the same tree, they found it was withered and dead. And we're going to see later on how this whole fig tree withering and dying incident and Jesus cursing it um, is really important in completely understanding the Olivet Discourse. Well, this was the third day in a row that Jesus and his disciples had visited the temple in Jerusalem, this being a Tuesday. On Sunday, the day after the Sabbath, they came into the small village called Bethpage, which sat next to Bethany. It's in the vicinity of the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples to fetch a colt. The colt, which the disciples found, is the one that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on. As he did so, a large crowd of people laid down palm branches in front of him and shouted, Hosanna, a word which originally represented a cry for help to God. But by this time, during Jesus' day, it was intended to be a shout of joy and welcome. This word was also associated with the deliverance by the Anointed One, the Messiah. A large crowd would have been easier to come by during the Passover week, since the population of Jerusalem's metropolitan area would have swollen from its normal approximate 100,000 up to about 200,000 residents. But secondly, raising a guy from the dead will contribute to your fan base. Jesus had a built-in group of supporters in Bethany who'd either heard secondhand or witnessed firsthand the miracle that Jesus performed there, raising Lazarus from the dead. It's no wonder this group of people might have considered Jesus the Messiah. It'd obviously be a different group present at Jesus' late-night trial only a few days later in Jerusalem who would all call for Jesus' crucifixion. After Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on Sunday, after this big you know, parade with all of the palm fronds being thrown in front of him, people shouting that he's the Messiah and Hosanna and all that, he toured the temple. Since it was already late, he went back to Bethany to spend the night. Monday morning comes around. After cursing the fig tree on the walk from Bethany to Jerusalem, Jesus paid a second visit to the Jewish temple. When he arrived there, that's when he flipped over the tables of some dubious vendors who were charging outrageous fees for exchanging common, quote, dirty money, uh, unquote, for, quote, holy money, unquote. Uh, This was the money that would have been used for such things as purchasing animals to sacrifice if they weren't able to bring the perfect sacrifice themselves. They had to buy them with clean money rather than their dirty money. And so essentially it was just a whole um, money-making deal to exchange money. Jesus acted like uh, like he had authority. He had the authority of a homeowner kicking unwanted people out of his house. It was, after all, considered the dwelling place of his Father, the Almighty God. So here we are, third trip back to Jerusalem. It's now Tuesday. Jesus had just made the approximate 45-minute walk back to Jerusalem from Bethany. Uh, He walked by the now-dead and withered fig tree, and we'll talk about more about that uh, and the significance of it a little later. But as Jesus entered the temple, you got to imagine there were probably some pretty nervous money changers after the incident that day prior. Jesus spent most of this day, this Tuesday, in the temple teaching and being tested by Pharisees and outwitting them. He became very pointed in his expressing his disapproval for the Jewish religious leaders, even calling them blind guides and snakes. 
I'm guessing that his disciples were probably really amazed and excited about what had been going on, how excited they must have been to witness the events of the last few days. They were probably thinking, was this the moment they had anticipated? Massive crowds were following the master, shouting blessings. He was validating all his claims by performing miracles right in front of him. People were looking to Jesus as a prophet and quite possibly their Messiah. None of the temple guards attempted to arrest Jesus even though he had caused major disruptions. Jesus was outwitting everyone who dared to question him. He was putting the Pharisees in their place. So I'm guessing, you know, what what pride the disciples must have felt in their master and probably likely in themselves to be associated with them. Yet Jesus knew how the week would progress. He knew by the end of the week, one of his disciples, Judas, would betray him, and that one of his closest friends, Peter, would deny he even knew Jesus. So it was time to speak clearly to his disciples. I can just, I can, you know, imagine the tension that Jesus was probably feeling now. It was all coming, coming down to a close. His time was growing short. By the end of the evening, this Tuesday evening, he again revealed to his disciples that he would be crucified in just a couple of days. Although they may have gone on to Bethany later that night, for some reason the group decided to spend at least part of the evening on the Mount of Olives rather than immediately going all the way back to Bethany. The Mount of Olives sits on the opposite side of the Kidron Valley from the temple that they just exited. Besides garbage dumps and cemeteries, there's a seasonal stream that runs through the valley. The tombs of Jehoshaphat, Absalom, and Zechariah are also there. And there's a garden called Gethsemane. It's found at the bottom of the slopes of the Mount of Olives. Jesus would be betrayed and taken captive there only in a couple of days. The Mount of Olives, as you might expect, was covered in olive trees. There'd be no shortage of firewood. Hopefully, they'd be able to camp in a spot with a good view of the torch-lit Temple Mount across the valley to the west. Jesus started his public ministry only about three years earlier. Since that time, he'd likely seldom been apart from his twelve close followers. They'd camped together and gathered around campfires many times before. Tonight's topic of conversation would prove to be uniquely interesting. In less than 40 years, Roman General Titus would make the top of the Mount of Olives his base camp for the siege of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. He'd call the Mount Lookout Hill. It's from the Mount of Olives that Jesus would ascend into heaven. And it's there that Christian tradition says that Jesus will first set his feet back on this earth when he returns. How appropriate that it's there that he would provide his disciples with the details about his return. Okay. So let's finally get into the scripture. I'll be reading my own translation of the different Olivet Discourse passages. Please feel free, I encourage you, to read them yourself in your most trusted translation or translations. So let's start with Matthew 24.1. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read from um, the all three different synoptic ga- Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they all three have a... Uh, Uh, passage that pertains to the same uh, thing that's going on. So first, let's start with Matthew 24, 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples pointed out the buildings of the temple to him. Well, in Mark 13, 1, it goes like this. 
And as he left the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what remarkable stones and buildings. And finally, in Luke 21.5, it goes like this. And as some spoke about how the temple was adorned with magnificent stones and offerings, he said... And so those are the three accounts in the different uh, synoptic or gospels that are similar, telling the same story. So the three gospel accounts are more than just a record of somebody exiting a large, beautiful stone building. It's more than just Jesus simply leaving the holy temple in Jerusalem after another day of teaching. Think of this event as the Almighty God after giving the Jewish leadership one last chance to get it right, departing the temple. God was leaving his, quote, home away from home, unquote, once and for all. The Matthew chapter 24 account of what took place starts with a Greek conjunction, kai. It's transliterated into English like K-A-I, kai, just what it'd sound like. It's the number one used Greek word in the New Testament. There, you know a word in Greek now. Way to go. Although kai can have several different meanings, most of the time it simply means and. So in light of the verses at the end of chapter 23, Matthew 24, 1 should be taken as a continuation of the story that was being told in chapter 23. Based on what was said and to whom it was said to in chapter 23, I'm confident that although short... This was a passionate conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus had just finished his really tense discourse on the extremely poor spiritual condition of those in Jewish leadership. This is what he told them. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you won't see me any more until you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That's found in Matthew 23, 38-39. So it's immediately after Jesus says these things that we see him leave the temple. In other words, the Messiah was walking out on those he had just admonished, actually cursed, and leaving them to their now desolate and godless temple. Well, there's a a parallel in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 9 to 11, that tells the story of the prophet Ezekiel's vision in which he witnesses the Spirit of God moving hesitantly out of the temple pausing at the threshold, exiting through the east gate, and finally hovering over the Mount of Olives to the east. This occurred after God had become disgusted with the actions of his chosen people. I can't help but think of Jesus having become disgusted with the actions of the spiritual leadership of Israel, taking the same route as the Spirit of God did in Ezekiel's vision. Like the Spirit of God, Jesus possibly and most likely paused at the east gate, where his disciples called his attention to the great building. Then, again, like the Spirit of God, Jesus ascended up the slopes of the Mount of Olives, which is the mountain on the east side of the city, just like in the uh, Ezekiel vision. Well, the books of Luke and Mark add additional details to the scene before Jesus and his disciples left the temple. Jesus decided to have a seat for a moment opposite of the temple treasury. It was there that he noticed the, quote, rich, unquote, making their contributions. He then called attention to a poor widow woman who was putting only a couple of coins into the offering. However, this was all the money that she had. 
Jesus remarked that this woman had given far more than those who had only given out of their excess. It was only a little while later, as Jesus and his disciples left, when taking note of the offerings and how the temple was adorned with goodly stones and offerings, that the disciples called Jesus' attention to the impressive building itself. Just as he was not impressed with those that gave the great riches on the inside of the temple, Jesus did not seem to be particularly impressed with the riches which had been used to pay for the outside of the temple mount structures. So let's move on to the next uh, verse, Matthew 24, 2. And Jesus said to them, Don't you see these things? I'm telling you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be destroyed. The Mark 13, 2 parallel passage. And Jesus replied to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another that won't be destroyed. And finally, the Luke 21, 6 parallel passage. There will come a day when not one of these stones that you're looking at will remain on another. Everyone will be destroyed. Maybe the disciples weren't listening to what Jesus just said inside the temple a short time earlier as he spoke to the Pharisees. Maybe they didn't get the significance of what was happening, or maybe it's possible they were just trying to cheer up the Master, Jesus, by distracting him after witnessing become quite upset with the religious leaders. Whatever the reason, it appears that Jesus' companions were more awestruck with the physical appearance of the temple rather than being concerned about what Jesus had just said. I mean, some pretty big things. This was the third consecutive day that this group had visited the temple. So they had clearly seen the big buildings and massive stones before. So why now were they calling his attention to it right after he had got done cursing the Pharisees? Well, the temple was amazing. It was considered one of the great structures in the ancient world. It stood in contrast to the typical scene the disciples would have witnessed as fishermen on the shores of the Galilee. This was the third temple built on this site. Some people called it the second, although between Solomon's first temple and King Herod's temple that they were looking at, there was a temple built by Zerubbabel. It was a lot smaller and lacked the resources and splendor of the first temple. King Solomon built the first. The temple Jesus and the twelve stood in front of that Tuesday was the temple that was rebuilt by King Herod. First century historian Josephus, he recorded that in the 18th year of his reign, King Herod initiated the reconstruction of the temple, paying for it himself. He laid a new foundation and constructed the walls out of hard, white stones. He essentially doubled the size of the original King Solomon's temple. One of those foundation stones of the retaining wall, which is still in place today, weighs an estimated over 301 tons. Purple hangings covered the entrances. Gold vines with what looked like grape clusters accented the temple. There were large porticos with 162 Corinthian columns surrounding the temple. The structure the disciples were fixated on was spectacular. Despite the excitement of the disciples, Jesus seems about as impressed with the temple as he was with the fig tree that he had cursed the day before for bearing no fruit. My guess is that the one who created the universe does not impress easily when it comes to man-made stuff. In response to the disciples, Jesus makes an amazing prophecy about the building made of huge stones. Like the unproductive fig tree that was not bearing any fruit, the temple would be destroyed.
There's no record of Jesus' disciples immediately responding to this prediction. Maybe they were too shocked to make comments right away. Maybe they were afraid that like the fig tree, the destruction was going to take place immediately and they just wanted to get out of the way. Maybe they felt ineffective at their attempts to distract Jesus and see how serious he was. They thought it was best to just be quiet for a while. This was not the first time Jesus had predicted the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Just after he entered the city on a donkey two days earlier, Jesus said this, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus and the twelve took the quarter-mile downhill walk eastward from the temple into the Kidron Valley and then back up a quarter-mile on the other side to possibly the top of the Mount of Olives. If the conversation did continue or not, it is clear that the disciples still had questions remaining. Later, when they had reached their resting place, the disciples must have been talking amongst themselves. Perhaps that evening they'd been looking at the great temple, softly illuminated by lamplight across the valley, and they were wondering why it was still standing after their master had cursed it. Whatever led up to the questions, the disciples asked for clarification from Jesus. Today, there is no Jewish temple standing on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It seems as though Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled in 70 A.D. when General Titus's troops raised it to the ground. At least, that's the claim that the preterist theory puts forth, and some believe. But still in existence today, and part of the architecture that Jesus and his disciples were talking about, and the disciples were amazed by, is what Josephus specifically referred to as, quote, the most prodigious work that was ever heard of by man, unquote. The Temple Mount itself, a man-made retaining wall structure that still occupies approximately 37 acres. It takes up over five football fields from north to south and six football fields from west to east. There's been a great deal of repairs made to the retaining wall of the Temple Mount since the first century by the Byzantines, the Arabs, the Crusaders, and the Ottomans. However, there is still a large amount of Herodian, you know, King Herod, masonry intact that would have been present the day that the disciples called Jesus' attention to the structure. Today, below the street level of the Western Wall, known by many as the Wailing Wall, lay 19 additional courses of Herodian quarried ashlars. This means that below modern ground level, there are still 68 vertical feet, that's almost seven stories, of stones, which are left one upon another, which reach all the way down to the first century street level of Jesus' day. There are an awful lot of stones left upon another to be able to call Jesus' prophecy literally and completely fulfilled. Now, this is not without controversy because there is a theory that's been put forth in recent history that the Temple Mount was actually located in a different location than where the majority experts think that it's located today. Uh, the leading experts continue to believe that theory to be false, and recent archaeological digs have in fact revealed that where the new theory believes the Temple Mount was, they've found ruins of King David's palace lying there. So the great majority of experts continue to believe that the Temple Mount is exactly where the Jews have always said it was. So today, 
thousands of Jews still worship at that Wailing Wall, or the Western Wall, uh, which is made up of the same stones placed there by King Herod's masons. So what of this? Was Jesus a false prophet? How come there is still one stone left on another? Well, I think it's as simple as the book of Revelation indicates that there will one day be a great earthquake that will level every city in the world, including Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem will be split into three parts by this earthquake. The unprecedented quake will be so great as to cause every island and mountain to collapse. Read about that quake in Revelation 16, verses 18 to 20. Unlike General Titus's armies, that future earthquake will likely bring about the complete fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy that, quote, not one stone will be left upon another, unquote, including the massive retaining wall structure. Well, that's about it for now. Next time, we'll start with the questions that the disciples asked Jesus that got him talking about his return and the end of the age. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com, or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.